Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, I have a special guest with me today, and I'm so excited to introduce you to him. I personally uh, met him through his book in college. I was trying to study the issue of creation and evolution, and somebody, and for the life of me, I can't remember who recommended it, but I remember coming across a book that was entitled The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And so I thought, hey, this is a title. If there's any title, I want the ultimate proof of this. And so I read that book and that was my first introduction to Dr. Jason Lyle. And I'm very excited to be able to share him with you, the podcast audience, because I think this is, this is one of the gentlemen who God is using to be able to uh, work in the area of the creation and evolution debate, just help Christian thinkers. So allow me to welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Lyle. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and to just get us started here, I know not everybody on the podcast is going to be familiar with who you are. So maybe could you just give us a brief introduction to um, maybe even where you grew up, how you went through education, how you got involved in the apologetic realm? Okay, well, I was I grew up in Ohio and uh, to to believing parents, and the Lord uh, used them and my church to. Uh, teach me about the gospel. And I recognized at a very early age that I was a wicked sinner and that I needed salvation. And so I was saved very, very young, six or seven years old, something like that. And I believe it was, it was genuine. I, I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior to pay for my sins. And I've always had an interest in science, even since I was very, very young. And so it would, it would no doubt, uh, there would, there would no doubt be conflict in my future because when you go through the, the, I went to a public school system and they taught evolution. They taught it as science. Uh, I don't really think of it that way anymore, but in any case, uh, that was, uh, that was something I had to think through. And I realized that of course, that's not compatible with what the Bible teaches. And frankly, it's, it's not good science. That's something that I've studied since then. And so be, because of that, because I enjoy science so much, and because I'm a Christian and I, and I want people to um, understand that the Bible's true from the very beginning, including Genesis, um, I, I've become very passionate about defending the Christian faith, particularly in the matter of origins and, and science in general, because uh, science is this wonderful tool that the Lord's given us to understand some aspects of how he upholds his creation. It's being used incorrectly to try and persuade people that the Bible's not true right, right at the start. Well, you know, we now know Big Bang and millions of years of evolution is how life came about. And well, that's not the case. And so I've tried to uh, specialize in kind of defending that. So I went through uh, my undergraduate was at Ohio Wesleyan University, which despite the name is really it's a secular school. But I double majored in physics and astronomy, had a great time there minored math. So I like math too. And then I went on to grad school at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I got my master's degree and PhD in astrophysics. And then as soon as I got my PhD, I, I immediately began going into full-time uh, ministry, creation ministry, apologetics ministry, because that's, that's where my heart is. I want to see people saved. I want to see uh, Christians have confidence in God's word and not be intimidated by these pseudoscientific claims that science somehow proves millions of years or evolution and what have you. So that's what I've been doing for the last uh, decade and a half. And uh, we're seeing the Lord's blessings and it's, it's been, uh, it's been great. It's really, it really has. Been. I mean, we have our challenges, but 
um, I have no regrets. I, I have a, I, I, I enjoy uh, doing what I do really. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. So I, I have a question on that because, you know, coming from my perspective, astrophysicist that that seems to be probably the least likely realm that i would ever choose so well, what brought you to that interest well you, you know even when i was really young and, and by the way i i love all the sciences and i try to be well-rounded i i've studied a little bit about genetics and biology and geology i find it all fascinating and all confirming god's word uh, but you can only you know, there's only a finite amount of time. I only have a finite amount of synapses in my brain. So a lot of them, but still. <laughs> so I specialized in, in astronomy and physics because that aspect of science just really um, has captured me. It's something that God has placed in my heart. When I was young and I would look at these beautiful pictures, and this was before Hubble, uh, but I see these beautiful pictures of stars and galaxies. And it's just, it's just magnificent. It's beautiful. Space is beautiful. And it's kind of an abstract art, but it's also so big. It just challenges the mind when we consider our own solar system and how big things are. And, and even when I was a little kid, I would have, my dad had a six inch telescope and I would uh, get that out. And I learned how to, how to operate that. And I would look at Jupiter and Saturn and just be amazed. And, and some of these, these um, galaxies that are very faint in a small telescope like that, but it's still cool to know you're seeing a collection of a hundred billion stars that these looks like this little smudge. Um, it's just wonderful. And so I've always had a special interest in astronomy and, and physics, the physics of Einstein, I find fascinating. I wrote a book on it recently, because it's just, it's, it's too wonderful. And people need to know about this, and it declares God's glory. And that's what I want people to know is that the heavens really do declare the glory of God. Oh, that's so cool. Um, actually, I was reminded of this, because my wife and I were just talking about the possibility of getting a uh, telescope we've not had one before and so for you know entry level someone who's looking to introduce their you know five six seven year olds to the stars and things like that any recommendations on looking for a telescope uh yeah um orion is a good brand name orion okay. telescopes and then you got to decide on what style you want if you want to go um cheap but still be able to see a lot a um, newtonian with a dobsonian mount those are kind of the cheapest they're a little bulky they're the ones where you look in the side and, you know, people get confused. Don't I look in the end? Oh, look yeah, inside. Yeah. And uh, if you want to spend a little more, then you might get a Schmidt Cassegrain. Those are more portable and a little easier to set up. Some of them have computer controls that, that adds a little bit. So it's just it's a question of how much you want. But uh, the nice thing is telescopes are relatively inexpensive. You can get a decent Newtonian Dobsonian for a few hundred bucks. Hmm. It's, it's just not that bad. And a Schmidt Cassegrain, you might go over a thousand to pay, you know, for a decent one. Bigger is better. Um, it's also less portable. That's the trade-off. Right. But whenever I'm, I'm moving my telescope, I'm like, why did I go so big? But when I'm looking through it, I'm like, why didn't I go bigger? Because <laughs> the bigger you get, the better the images will be. They'll be brighter and they'll be a little more crisp. So those are the trade-offs you have to uh, make. So uh, Newtonian, Dobsonian for cheap, and then a Schmidt Cassegrain if you want to go a little higher okay. quality. And I do have a book on this called Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky. And it's got a chapter on telescopes and, and the, the advantages and disadvantages of each. And so you, uh, anyone who's wanting to do that might look at that book. Oh, great. Yeah. Thank you for that. I know uh, some of the listeners have, have younger kids and they've uh, no doubt uh, been asking some of the same questions. So 
So obviously, speaking of books, that kind of brought why I asked you on this podcast. So I, I was um, introduced to you through the book, Ultimate Proof of Creation. Maybe if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit of your motivation in writing that book. Like what, how did that come about? Um, what, what's kind of the backstory to that? Okay, I was um, introduced via a friend of mine to the works of Dr. Greg Bonson, who is a um, brilliant apologist of the 20th century. He, w- he had a PhD in philosophy, interestingly, and he, he was a, just a brilliant scholar, one of the most brilliant men of the century, and he had a heart for Jesus. Boy, did that guy love the Lord, and he, he pastored a church, and he did, he did so many amazing things, and the Lord took him home at the age of 47, interestingly, so, which is my current age, so I thought, wow, that's, man, I wish <laughs> I'd have accomplished as much as Bonson did in his 47 years, but um, one of the things that really caught me was he did this debate against Gordon Stein, and this was back in 1985, and it's it's a classic. If you haven't listened to the Bonson-Stein debate, boy, is it amazing, and I listened to that, and I was so impressed by how brilliant, uh, not only how brilliant Bonson's answers were, but how biblical they were. Here was, here was a man who didn't shy away from the Bible like so many apologists do, so we'll leave the Bible out of the discussion because, you know, you know, that's... I'll capitulate to your belief that that's just a silly book of myths. And, and I'll show you scientifically that, you know, creation happened. Bonson didn't do that. He pointed out that the Bible is the word of God and it's ridiculous not to start from there, but he was also very scholarly in his approach. And when I listened to that debate over and I listened to it over and over again, because I was amazed at his answers. I, I thought to myself, this man thinks like Jesus and he argues like Jesus did in his earthly ministry. So I wanted to learn to think that way. So I got everything by Bonson. Unfortunately, most of his um, uh, sermons and lectures on apologetics are recorded. I got all of them. I got his books and everything. I read through it all. And I realized that, that I had been thinking about apologetics wrong. I thought that the way that you defended the faith was you got more and more and more facts on your side. You, you got as much evidence as, as possible. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with learning about scientific evidence. And I still do that. I, and I still share that with people that has some value. But it's all the more important to learn how to defend the faith biblically. The Bible actually gives us some instructions on how it is to be defended. And when I started thinking that way, I realized how powerful it is. I started using that approach and um, sharing it with people and, and they had no comeback. When you point out that that the Bible, that the biblical God is the basis for our being able to know anything about anything because he's revealed himself to us. That's why we can have some degree of confidence in our mind's ability to reason, because it's not the result of an accident of evolution. It's designed by God. And we're made in God's image. He thinks perfectly. We have the capacity to think in a way that's consistent with God's character that's been marred by sin, but there's still some capacity there. And, um, and, and also our senses are basically reliable because they've been created by God and so on. And once you realize that, you realize that uh, any evidence that's been obtained by the scientific method is evidence for God because the scientific method is based on the idea that God upholds his universe in a consistent fashion that we can probe. And you get, you know, you do an experiment under certain circumstances, you get a certain result. You do the same thing tomorrow under the same circumstances, you get the same result because God has promised us some degree of orderliness in nature. Genesis 8, 22, he promises the cycles that the seasons would be the same as long as the earth remains. And so I got very excited about this and I started um, teaching on it. And I saw other Christians get excited about it and using it with their unbelieving friends and their unbelieving friends just, they can't answer it because it's, it's wisdom from God and you can't, you can't argue with God. 
And so that's why I wrote the book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. That was my attempt to say, hey, folks, let's all get on board with this way of thinking, this way of defending the faith that is very powerful because it's very biblical. And there's been, I've been using it for you know a decade and a half now, and no one's been able to come up with a good counter argument to it. It is very powerful. And so that's what I wanted to share with folks. This what's what's sometimes called a presuppositional approach to apologetics. Very powerful. Yeah, that's uh, I remember the first uh, I, I think it must have been in the introduction. It's been a while since I, I've read it. But I, I, I remember um, when you were discussing just how evidence is always interpreted in light of a worldview. That was just so eye opening to me. And of course, this was years ago, but it stuck with me ever since because that's so true is that you can give a piece of evidence and somebody can take that and use it as proof for their for their way of understanding things. Um, and it, it just boggled my mind thinking there's gotta be a better way. And yeah, I think the way that you approach it in the, in the book is, is, you know, right on. So let, let me ask a little bit about that then. So, so you would, in a presuppositional approach to apologetics, focus more on what we would probably call a worldview rather than evidential, uh, looking at that. So what are the foundations of worldview for, for listener? Like, what does that mean when we're talking about worldview and then how, how are we to think and evaluate those worldviews? Okay. Well, the worldview is kind of the way that you see things, your, your most basic beliefs about how the universe works, how, how truth is determined, what's out there and so on. Uh, it, what we call presuppositions, your most basic beliefs about reality a worldview is a network of those presuppositions untested by the natural sciences and, and in which and in light of which all experience is interpreted. We all have a worldview, but not a lot of people have consciously cogitated on what their own worldview is. It's just something that I, I like to I like to uh, think of it like kidneys. Uh, you know, you're, you can't survive without your kidneys. They're, they're doing an important function. And yet most people are not aware of their own until something goes wrong with one of them. And so what I try to do as an apologist is give people the intellectual equivalent of a kidney stone. I give them something that their worldview can't process. And sometimes that is a piece of evidence that I'm using to sort of open the door. Sometimes people think, well, presupposition, presuppositionalists use less evidence. That's not the case. It's all about how we use the evidence. And I use evidence to expose faulty worldviews and to demonstrate how my worldview, the Christian worldview, um, makes sense of things and can account for the scientific method and rationality and so on. So I, what I, what I try to do is, is make people aware of the problems in their worldview. So let's say somebody's an atheist and he believes that we need to be logical uh, in our approach to things. Now I also believe we should be logical in our approach to things, but what is his basis for believing that there ought to be laws of logic and who decides what they are? And why do they have the properties they do? We assume that laws of logic will work even in unexperienced situations. Like when the astronauts first went to the moon back in 69, they had lots of concerns because it was a complicated mission. But one thing they were not concerned about was, boy, we hope laws of logic work on the moon. Mm. No, they assumed that they would. And I, as a Christian, can account for that. I can say, well, laws of logic, in my view, laws of logic are a reflection of the way God thinks. And therefore, the way we must think, if we're to think truthfully, uh, in, in, my, in my worldview, truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. And so you need to think like God if you're going to come to true conclusions. And, but my secular colleagues, how, what, do you, what do you make of laws of logic? Is it just someone's opinions? And whatever they answer, 
then I'll just point out it, it doesn't work. They'll say, well, laws of logic are conventions that humans have agreed upon. And so they work. A convention is something that we all kind of, we all kind of agree upon it and uh, like driving on the right side of the road. And it's helpful. But you see, if laws of logic were conventional, then they could be different in different places. Like in Australia, you drive on the left side of the road. That's their convention. And so laws of logic would not be universal if they were conventions. And so that answer doesn't work. And then they'll propose something. Well, there are chemical reactions in your brain. Well, then why should I follow them? I mean, it's, why should I follow chemistry? I've got chemistry going on in my stomach. Should I use my indigestion to tell me you know, <laughs> what's truthful and what's not? So uh, whatever they answer, it's not going to be sufficient. So I often use evidence to open the door to get people to realize that their worldview cannot make sense of things that they take for granted. Morality, I think, is a really good one to start with because laws of logic, that's kind of abstract. But most people have thought about right and wrong. And, uh, and I, can, I can account for that in my worldview. I can say, well, right is that which corresponds to what God approves of. Wrong is what God disapproves of. Right brings God's blessings. Wrong brings God's wrath. And I have a very good reason to obey the biblical definition of what's right, because I'm gonna, ultimately I'm going to be judged by God and his standard. And we, we all fall short. We need salvation. But my point is I can make sense of an objective morality that's the same for all people and how we know what it is. But in an evolutionary worldview, how, how do you even make sense of right and wrong? What does that even mean? If we're just chemical accidents, I mean, chemical, there's no right and wrong about chemistry. If you mix the vinegar and the baking soda, it will fizz every time. There's no right or wrong about it. It's not like you'd be upset and say, bad baking soda, you shouldn't have fizzed that way, because that's just what it does. There's no choice in chemistry. And so if we're just chemicals, right and wrong make absolutely no sense. And some people might tentatively agree with that and say, yeah, yeah, it's, it's subjective. Morality is subjective. But they can't live that way. Because if I say, well, if I wanted to pull a gun on you, hypothetically, why shouldn't I pull the trigger? Go ahead, make my day. And uh, if they say, well, I, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I, well, no, you can't do that because there's an objective right and wrong. Well, then they've made my day because they pointed out the biblical worldview is, is the one that can make sense of that. If they say, yeah, we're just rearranged pond scum. I can't think of a reason. Then, what, then I just pull the trigger and I win the debate that way. I really mm -hmm. wouldn't do that. But you see my point. And in fact, that analogy was used in the, in the Bonson-Stein debate masterfully, and the, the atheist could not come back from it, because in an atheistic universe, what happens simply happens. There's no right or wrong about it. And so that's, that's one defect in that worldview that I can expose, and all non-biblical worldviews will have defects in them that are fatal, because, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1-7. Hmm. Yeah, that's so good. So obviously laws of logic um, are uh, an important part. But like you say, you know, a lot of people can readily understand the issue of morality as well. And then I think you, you've talked a little bit about the, the idea of uniformity too, just being able to explain that from a Christian worldview. Yeah. And, and that's, that's something that's near and dear to my heart because that's what makes science possible. Uh, there, there are regularities in nature. God allows some things to change. There's other things he doesn't allow to change. The law of gravity doesn't change, right? I mean, of course, God can do a miracle. That's, that's not a problem. But there, he has imposed a certain degree of orderliness on his creation. And that's what allows us to do what's called induction. Induction is where we infer a, an underlying pattern based on certain specific instances. And, and humans are really good at that. It's something that God's given us the ability to do. We can see 
you know, certain instances, and then we can deduce a generalization. Like, you know, you, you, go, you go and visit Florida uh, several times. And you're like, man, every time I'm here, it's, it's warm and, and it's kind of, and it's humid. You would then come to the conclusion that generally Florida is warm and humid. That's the generalization there. Or if when, I, when I drop something, every time it goes down, I say, oh, generally things fall when I let go of them. And so I can conclude something about gravity. Science is all about that. Science is about discovering these underlying patterns that God has imposed on his creation. But you see, in a chance universe, why would you expect there to be any patterns whatsoever in nature? It'll do no good, good to say, well, they're there. I know they're there because my, my worldview makes sense of that. But how can you account for that? And one in particular that we rely upon every day uh, is, is a uniformity in nature over time. We assume, I mean, when, when you got up this morning, you assumed that gravity would work the same way it did yesterday. I mean, nobody gets up in the morning and braces themselves just in case gravity should throw them up to the ceiling. They assume that gravity pulls things down as it has in the past. And I would say, if you're, if, if you're a Christian, yeah, we have every reason to believe that. I have a promise from God in Genesis 8.22 that there are certain cycles of nature that will be in the future as they were in the past. God gives the day and night cycle and the seasons as specifics, but we can discover others through science. So yeah, I have a, I have a promise from God that in, in basic ways, nature is, is uniform at the, at the fundamental level. And so I have a reason for believing gravity will work tomorrow as it has today. The seculars can't answer that. And, and there's a temptation to say, well, it's always been that way. Yes, but unless you mutter under your breath and therefore always will be, you haven't proved anything. But when you mutter under your breath and therefore it always will, you've assumed uniformity. You see, anytime we use past experience as a basis for what we feel is likely to happen in the future, we're assuming uh, uniformity. We're assuming this principle, right? And so if, if I ask you how you justify that principle, you can't use past experience because that assumes the very principle I'm asking you to justify. And people struggle with that because it's so foundational to our nature. God has programmed it into us to understand that we can use past experience as a basis for what's likely to happen in the future. And so when I ask you to defend that principle, people try to use it even to defend it. They'll say, well, in the past, it's worked really well, so in the future it will, but that begs the question. That's a logical fallacy. And in fact, in one of the textbooks that I use on Introduction to Logic by Copey and Cohen, they use that as the very example of begging the question. David Hume talked about that, the secular philosopher. He could not account for, on his secular worldview, how he knew that the sun would rise tomorrow. And I think that's, a, yeah, I can answer that. Genesis 8.22 tells me there will be a sunrise tomorrow. I have a promise from God. God's beyond time, so he's in a position to know the future. But on a secular worldview, we all somehow know that the sun will rise tomorrow. But on any worldview other than Christianity, you can't account for that knowledge. Yeah, that's that's so so good. So I love just thinking thinking through that as like a three part outline of sorts. You got the logic, morality, and uniformity, which clearly give you know evidence to to the biblical worldview. Now, one one thing that I'm sure you know you've you've heard before with regard to this kind of argument trying to support the biblical worldview is that people will say, "Well, now wait a second, that may may say that there's a problem with the secular or atheistic worldview, but what about somebody who's coming at it from some sort of maybe Islamic background or something? How do um, in fact, that was, I also uh, had the privilege of listening to the Bonson-Stein debate in seminary, really loved that. It was, like you said, eye-opening to me to this whole um, discussion. And um, I, I think what some people will try to argue then is, well, that just says maybe that 
that there's a God or some outside power. So how do, um, as Christians and as you've worked through this, um, how would you talk to somebody who says, well, maybe that that's discounting the atheistic worldview, but maybe a, a Muslim or somebody else um, would have a counter argument to the Christian? Yeah, and I do get that a lot. I get that question a lot. And one of the, the answer to it is actually found in the Bonson-Stein debate. Many people miss this point, but in his opening statement, Dr. Bonson pointed out that he says he's not simply defending theism in some generic sense. He's defending Christian theism, and that is he's defending Christianity as a network, as a whole. And so he's not, he's not arguing that some kind of God must exist. It's the biblical God that has to exist, and that it does eliminate any of the other religions. And in terms of specific examples, uh, we could take, we could take Islam and uh, Islam endorses portions of the Bible. It endorses the works of Moses. So that the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, it says those are from God. It says the Psalms of David are from God. It says the gospel of Jesus is from God. Okay. But then it contradicts those things because it says that Jesus was not actually crucified, but we were meant to think that he was, it was just apparent and so on. Well, that's, the, I'm sorry, but that's the heart of the gospel is the crucifixion and then the subsequent resurrection of Jesus. That's the whole point of all, all four gospels indicate that. And so uh, obviously Islam cannot be the, the, the basis for laws of logic because it violates the law of non-contradiction. It says that Jesus both did die and he, and he didn't die. And uh, that's, that doesn't work. So that's out. Um, any polytheistic religion is out because um, if, if, you know, laws of logic are rooted in the mind of God, that's why they're universal, because God is omnipresent. Laws of logic don't change with time, because God doesn't. Same, same way with morality. It doesn't change with time, because God is consistent. He's beyond time. But if there were multiple gods, you'd have multiple moralities. You'd have multiple laws of logic, depending on which part of the world you're in. Because in the, in the Greek system, different gods rule different, either different areas, locations, or different aspects you know, Poseidon, if you're in the ocean, Poseidon's the one you want to worship. And if you're at war, Ares is the one you want to worship and, and so on. And so you'd have different laws of logic. That, that's not true to reality, though. We have one law, laws of, one set of laws of logic that apply universally. And so it, that, that eliminates pretty much all the religions that, that we've talked about. We could go into Christian cults, I guess, but that eliminates Islam. It eliminates any kind of polytheistic religion, which is most of them. And we've already eliminated atheism. That can't account for anything. So this, this approach, it will, um, it will operate, uh, it will demonstrate a faulty worldview if that worldview is not Christianity. It'll, it'll work on anything. Now, the specific questions you're going to ask, you might tailor that to, to that worldview to expose its defects. But uh, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge. The Lord, not a, some kind of conception of a generic deity. It's the Lord, Yahweh, is uh, the basis for all knowledge. Mm, that's that's super helpful. And I think it's helpful just for, you know, the everyday Christian. One of the things that I'm so attracted to this is just to recognize you don't have to be an astrophysicist to be able to account for all the different variations of evidence. I think it's very helpful to be able to just pull all pull it all back to the issue of worldview and say, listen, like, I don't understand some of this stuff. That's beyond my pay grade. But the one thing I do understand is that this worldview is the only one that can account for what we actually see and observe and experience. And I think that that's super helpful for people, especially for somebody like me who, you know, I, I probably would have failed out of science, you know, if I, uh, you know, had my way, but that's why I'm thankful for people like you, you know, who, uh, who do the, do the dirty work as it were. But that brings up another issue too, with regard to even thinking through, uh, the issues of logic. I know that 
you've done some work in this area. And I know uh, as Christians, sometimes we are a, a little hesitant to, to think about logic. Maybe we think of it as maybe a, a dirty word or just a concept that belongs in the, in the Greco philosophical realm or something. And, you know, for Christians, all we need to do is just be people of blind faith. I'm sure you've heard that a lot. And so maybe, maybe you'd like to walk us through a little bit of your thinking on that. Yeah, it's uh, blind faith is something the Bible never endorses, but biblical faith is when you have confidence in something you have not perceived with your senses. Hebrews 11, one basically says that. Uh, but that confidence is well justified in the Christian worldview. I have a good reason to believe in God. He's been faithful. The, the whole Bible is a record of God's faithfulness and his, and as well as his mercy when we're not faithful and he, he extends forgiveness to us. Um, but biblical faith is never blind. It's, it's, it, we have a good reason for it. And one good reason is it makes knowledge possible. That's, that's a great reason for, to believe in the biblical worldview. But um, God calls us to, to be reasonable. He calls us, he, come let us reason together. That's in Isaiah chapter one. Uh, we're supposed to be reasonable. The Bible says we're not to be like the horse or mule that has no understanding. You put a bit in its mouth and it, you, can, you can make a horse go whatever way it wants, you want it to go. We're not, God says we're not supposed to be like that. We, you know, somebody tells us you should believe that. And we just, okay, blindly like a horse with a bit in its mouth. He says, no, you should be, you should be understanding. You should think about things. You should process them. And, uh, and, and, and because God is a thinking being, he's logical. We're commanded to emulate God. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1, we're to be imitators of God. So we should be logical too. Uh, one of my favorite um, passages in scripture in Isaiah 55, uh, beginning in verse seven, uh, God tells us the, the um, well, actually, actually, let me start in verse eight. Verse eight is that verse that a lot of people like to, to quote, you know, for, you know, that uh, my, for my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts. That's the problem. Verse seven actually gives the solution. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. The Lord will abundantly pardon. So the, the big problem, according to Isaiah 55, is that we don't think like God, which is to say we're not rational. Rational is to think correctly. God always thinks correctly. To be rational is to think like God, to think in a way that's consistent with his character. And when we don't, it's sin. It's wickedness because we're not imitating God the way we're supposed to. We're, we're supposed to bear his image. That's why he, it's one of the reasons he made us to bear his image, to be reflections, creaturely reflections of him. And so uh, that's something that uh, we need to take seriously. And Isaiah 55 tells us that if we're not doing that, we need to turn away from our wickedness and turn toward the Lord and think like him and, and be like him. And that means we should be logical. We should think correctly, have good reasons for our beliefs. First Peter 3.15 tells us we need to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks a reason of the hope that's in us, which means you better have a reason for the hope that's in you. It can't be blind faith. That, that passage would make no sense if our faith were blind. We would not have a reason for the hope that's in us. We just say, well, I'm just blindly believing. We have a good reason. And that, that good reason, for one of them is that it makes knowledge possible. The biblical worldview makes it possible for me to know things about logic and science and morality and how to and how to account for these things. So yes, we should be rational. We should have faith in God, but it's not a blind faith. It's it's the only rational faith. Hmm. Yeah, that that's super helpful. So when when we're thinking, you know, everyday Christians, the people in the church, you know, they're they're not in the in the seminaries or the universities studying. You know, they're they're you know working um, very hard. You know, day in day out. Um, what are some just some practical ways? you know, that you could suggest for people in improving, you know, their logical thought process and, and working through those kinds of things? 
Well, I've actually written a, a number of books that deal with logic. There's a little bit of logic in The Ultimate Proof of Creation. There's a couple chapters there. But uh, after having written that, I thought I need to expand on that. I did another book called Discerning Truth that goes through the top 10 fallacies that evolutionists tend to commit when they, when they argue against creation. And there's not a good argument against creation. If you hear an argument against creation that sounds reasonable, it's a fallacy. Can you walk us through, like, if somebody doesn't know what, like, a fallacy is, what, what would be sure. some examples of that? Fallacy is a common error in reasoning, a mistake in reasoning. One of them is equivocation. Equivocation is where you switch the meaning of a word in the middle of an argument. And, like, the word evolution. The word evolution has multiple meanings. You can look it up in the dictionary. One meaning is just change. Now, I believe in that kind of evolution. I think things change because the world was once a paradise. Today, it's not. Things have changed. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe in the neo-Darwinian evolution, the idea that all uh, organisms are descended from a common ancestor. A lot of times, people will try to persuade you of neo-Darwinian evolution by giving you an example of a different type of evolution. So you'll hear... Um, you know, well, we know we know evolution is true in the Darwinian sense because bacteria have evolved resistance to, to uh, antibiotics. Some of them, ha they have some bacteria have changed to where they can handle more antibiotics than, than normal due to a, usually usually a missing gene or a damaged gene, interestingly. But um, bacteria becoming bacteria, I don't dispute that. That doesn't prove that bacteria eventually become people. That's a different type of change, you see. And so when they use that argument, that's an example of an equivocation fallacy or reification. Reification is when you attribute a concrete or, or personal characteristic to an abstraction. And there's nothing wrong with reification in itself, but when it's used as part of an argument, it's a fallacy. And so when people say something like, you know, well, science says, you know, I mean, creationists believe, you know, the world's 6,000 years old, but science says it's 4.5 billion years old. I have to point out to them, uh, science doesn't say anything. Science is a method. It's not a person. It doesn't have opinions on things. It's a method we use to test certain truth claims. Now, they would be more accurate to say scientists say the world is 4.5 billion years old, but then they'd have to qualify it because not all scientists say that. I'm a scientist and I don't say that. So they'd have to say, they, they could be accurate by saying most scientists say the world's 4.5 billion years old. And I would accept that as an accurate statement. But they don't say it that way because it loses its power. If you say science, it sounds very monolithic, like, you know, you know, like everybody agrees, but not everybody agrees with that. And so that's an example of a reification fallacy. So my book, Discerning Truth, goes through the, it's a, it's a short book. You can read it in probably a half an hour and it'll go through the top 10 fallacies that evolutionists commit. If you want to go a little more in depth, I actually wrote a um, curriculum that is an introduction to informal logic and it, it's just called Introduction to Logic, and then it's got a section on informal fallacies. And uh, you can get that through our website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And that, that's actually designed, you say, well, can I handle it? It's designed for junior high to high school. Yeah, you can handle it. But I would encourage adults to get it too, because most adults have, have never had a class on logic. That's true. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you for pointing us to those sources. Um, one thing, and, I, and I, talking before um, we started recording, I had shared that, you know, I've talked to multiple individuals who, who seem to be, you know, buying into this idea of, of cultural influence, um, thinking that, you know, 
we are we are largely products of of where we find ourselves and and obviously one of the biggest examples that um that people give is you know where you're born dictates what religion you choose like if you're born in Islamic country, of course, you're going to be Muslim. And if you're born in a largely Christian country, that's the only reason you're a Christian. And so we're just products of, of, you know, our upbringing, our culture. And obviously this relates to, you know, the, the idea of thinking through logic. So maybe you, you want to just address that for a couple of minutes. Yeah. And the reason that's, that's a tough one for a lot of people to answer is because there's some truth to it. It is true that if you're born in a nation that's primarily Christian, you're more likely to become a Christian. There's no doubt about that. But the question is, see, see, often they'll use that as, as a sort of counter argument. I'll give some great reason to be a Christian. And they'll say, well, you're just a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. That's a fallacy. That's a, what's called a circumstantial ad hominem fallacy. You see, because they haven't actually given me any reason to doubt my argument that Christianity is true. They've changed the subject to motivations. But my motivations and my the, the way in which I learned that Christianity is true is irrelevant to the truth of Christianity, right? Uh, it, see, if somebody, let's say somebody's working at a gas station and they, they're, they make an argument that we should raise the, the price of, of gasoline. And somebody says, well, you're just making that argument because you work at a gas station. Now, that may be true, but that doesn't automatically make his argument wrong, does it? See, a person's circumstances, for, or their, a person's motivations for making an argument has no bearing on the cogency of that argument. And so when people say, well, you know, you're a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm grateful that I was, but that doesn't mean I don't have great reasons to continue to be a Christian, to continue to believe that. It'd be like saying, well, you just believe in the multiplication table because you were taught it in school. Well, yeah, I was, I was taught the multiplication table in school. Does that make the multiplication table false? Of course not. I've got great reasons to continue to believe in the multiplication table. If somebody was raised by wolves, they probably would not know about the multiplication table. But that's to their, that's that's their loss. I mean, that's that's a shame, right? Because it's that it doesn't change the truth of it, does it? And so it is true that people will tend to uh, acquire the religion that they that they grew up with. There's no doubt about that. But that's irrelevant to the truth of that religion. And I would argue that only the Christian religion, only the Christian faith system has a rational argument behind it. Namely, it makes knowledge possible. It accounts for things like morality, logic, and science. No other world you can do that. Hmm, that's that's really helpful. It seems to me that there would be you know application to that principle even within the Christian sphere with all with these uh, variety of different theological camps. Um, sure. A lot yeah. of times, you know, the the accusation could be lobbied. Well, you know, I would believe you know X Y Z if I had been in that camp um, or vice versa. But I think it is you know, it's, it's the Berean strategy, you know, we are to evaluate things in accordance with scripture and verify them that way, rather mm -hmm. than argue experientially like that. I think that's right. good, good insight on that. Oh, that's, that's super helpful. Um, with regard to um, logic and, and, you know, even just arguing, you know, whether holistically or even culturally, I think, I think that's really helpful to give people a paradigm um, in, in how to think through those things. So I appreciate you giving us uh, that information. Now, I, I do want to uh, ask a question here that uh, I suppose, I'm sure everyone else is going to find this interesting as well, but it's very rare that we would have an astrophysicist on, you know, the podcast. So I want to take as, as much, uh, you know, advantage of this as possible. So uh, the distant starlight problem is often brought up by evolutionists saying, well, 
uh, very clearly you have, uh, you know, stars that are billions of light years away. And so you can't have a young earth. So I know you've done some thinking writing on this. Maybe do you want to walk us through how you think there, there could be a variety of solutions to that issue? Sure. Um, it, it's, it's a complicated issue. I, I will point out, first of all, that you, you don't have to know the scientific details of that to be able to defend the faith, right? Because, uh, God, first of all, God's not limited by natural laws anyway. So, you know, how do you, how do you explain the resurrection? I, I, don't, there, I don't have a scientific explanation for the resurrection because God's not bound by the laws of nature. The laws of nature refer to the way God normally upholds his creation, but he doesn't have to do it that way. He can, he can make exceptions. And so uh, I, I would encourage Christians to, one, one answer they could give is to give a little bit of, use a little bit of mild sarcasm. Jesus did on occasion. He did use sarcasm on occasion. Yep, yep. When somebody says, yeah, you know, you can't get that light here in 6,000 years. You say, yeah, God doesn't understand all that complicated physics. There's no way he could do that. That's probably why he was confused when he wrote Genesis. I mean, come on. This, this is God. He can do what he wants. The question is, can we account for that? Um, can we make sense of it today? Is, is it something, did God do it supernaturally or did he do it naturally? That's the issue, really. And I think actually it's naturally, I, I don't think he had to do anything supernatural to get the starlight here because of the nature of time. And Einstein discovered that time is not the rigid and flexible thing that we all assume it is. Uh, it's just, we don't notice the, well, for one example, motion affects the passage of time. If you move faster, your clock actually ticks a little slower than somebody who's stationary. And Einstein realized that would have to be the case. He demonstrated it's, it's since been tested with atomic clocks, but the effect is very small at the speeds at which we normally travel. And so you can't, I mean, you, you need an atomic clock to measure it. And, if, and that has been done with airplanes, you know, flying around the world and so on. So that has been done. Um, but that becomes really important when you get up to speeds approaching the speed of light. And of course the light itself travels at the speed of light. So that effect is very important. Light actually doesn't experience time at all. Its clock would be stopped. So from light's point of view, every trip is instantaneous. That's kind of interesting. So uh, one of the things that Einstein discovered was that uh, what we, how we synchronize two clocks, synchronize, you know, uh, having them read the same time at the same time. We know those from the old spy movies, right? Let's all synchronize our watches, uh, meaning they read the same time at the same time. Now, if two clocks are right next to each other, that's easy. But if they're separated by a distance, how do I ensure that clock A reads the same time as clock B at the same time? And Einstein discovered that's not even a meaningful question because whether or not two clocks are synchronized will depend on the motion of the observer. It's amazing. And so there is no such thing as absolute uh, synchronization. And what that means is the, the speed of light in one direction can't actually be measured because you'd need a clock here to know when it starts and you need a clock there to know when the light stops, right? All those measurements of the speed of light are either directly or indirectly round trip measurements. And so it's how long it would take light to go out and come back. Let's say it takes, let's say it takes 10 seconds for me to send out a light to a distant mirror and then reflect and, and see the, the return signal. Most people would assume it takes five seconds to go out and five seconds to come back. Well, we don't actually know that. It could take one second to go out and nine seconds to come back. It could take zero seconds or it could take 10 seconds to go out and zero seconds to come back. Although, and Einstein recognized all those are possibilities. And so it could be the case that light when it's moving toward an observer is instantaneous. It's, it actually has an infinite velocity, but then the return 
uh, trip would be, it would have to be one half C, one half the, the round trip speed of light. And so because we can't measure the one-way speed of light objectively without circular reasoning, this has been really well established in the literature. Not everyone agrees with it, but, but most physicists do. Uh, because, then there's no way to synchronize two clocks in an objective sense. And what that means is light can leave those distant galaxies soon as they're created on day four of the creation week, and it can arrive on Earth immediately on day four of the creation week. It can even do that today if we use that system of synchronizing clocks. And I'm not saying the other system is wrong. I'm just saying it's different. And so that, that's kind of the short answer. I know that's, that's counterintuitive, and, but I've demonstrated, you know, I have a book called The Physics of Einstein, where it gives you enough understanding of the physics of Einstein to be able to see that this has to be the case, that the one-way speed of light is not something that we measure. It's something we stipulate, and that tells us how to synchronize clocks. And in the ancient world, they all used the uh, convention whereby what we see happens in real time. So the light doesn't take any time to get here. And that's perfectly consistent with all modern physics. That's what surprises people. And I think the Bible uses that convention as well. So the stars were actually made on day four and their light reached earth immediately traveling at infinite velocity because of the way we choose to synchronize clocks or rather the way the ancient world did. And we can still do that today and we get the same answer. So you cannot use distant starlight as an objection to the biblical time scale because you'd have to establish that the speed of light in one direction takes a long time. And that is impossible to do based on the physics that Einstein discovered. That's the long and short of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, breaking that down. And just to, to clarify, I think you, you did mention this, but this isn't just something that only Christian physicists are asserting, right? This is right. Einstein, Einstein wrote about it. the speed of light in one direction is not, is, is what do you say? It's in, in reality, neither a hypothesis, uh, nor a, I forget what the other word was. Um, it's not a hypothesis about the physical nature of light, but a stipulation, which I can make of my own free will in order to arrive at a definition of simultaneity. That's a quote from Einstein. Well, translated from the German. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, yeah. So the word, the exact wording may differ, but um, yeah, Einstein was well aware of the fact that the speed of light in one direction cannot be measured. You stipulate it and that tells you how to synchronize your clocks. And there's a variety of different ways to do that. Uh, so, and this, this was debated. Not everyone agreed with Einstein. And some people tried to push back and they'd say, no, here, here, this experiment will measure the one-way speed of light without first assuming it. And then they published that. And in the next issue, somebody would refute it. They would point out, no, you made an assumption here that nullifies your results. And so this, this uh, principle is called the conventionality thesis. If people want to look it up, the conventionality thesis, um, it's, fa- it's a fascinating topic. There's even a Wikipedia article on it that's reasonably accurate. And um, there's a book, too, written by Max Jammer. Max Jammer wrote a book called um, uh, Concepts of Simultaneity from Antiquity to Einstein and Beyond. And it's a, hmm. it's a marvelous book summarizing uh, the literature on this, on this topic. Hmm, wow. Yeah, thank you for it's not a, those, Yeah, uh, it's not something that a creationist came up with. I just pointed out that it solves the starlight problem. Sure. Yeah. No, that's, that's really helpful to, to be aware of those things. Yeah, maybe as as kind of a last question here before before we let you go. Um, obviously, having dealt in the creation evolution uh, discussions for for you know, a variety of years now, um, being involved uh, in churches presenting these these issues, 
you know, as you see where where churches struggle, maybe where people are are wanting wisdom, what kind of encouragement or advice could you give people as they're as they're talking to their friends, their neighbors, even as they're struggling themselves? Maybe if they're if they're saying, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, it seems like everyone's saying evolution is true, um, or at least everybody I'm interacting, rubbing shoulders with. Um, how how can I have confidence that creation is true? What kind of advice or wisdom would you give to people in you know, in those kinds of situations? Well, that's one of the reasons that I started the ministry, the Biblical Science Institute. So I would encourage them to ch- get our resources, check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com, um, get the books that we have there, get the ultimate proof of creation. I've got another book called Understanding Genesis that goes through and shows you that Genesis it really does mean what it, what it says and so on. Um, I would encourage that uh, such people also to, you know, iron sharpens iron. So get with some other people that, are solid that are committed to God's word and, and spend them, you know, spend a lot of time with them. Now, you know, you want to spend some time witnessing to others and, and, and trying to help other uh, Christians even to, to have more confidence in the Bible. That's fine. But uh, the Bible indicates that, that we do tend to become like the people that we, we spend our time with. So we have to be careful about that. So um, yeah, just get the resources, study up on it. Keep in mind that the Bible really is, it's God's word. And it would be helpful, too, to, to run through some of the history of science. I actually have a um, one of the talks that I do. It's called Astronomy Reveals Creation. And you can get the DVD on our website. And I go through the history of astronomy and point out that in the past, there were people who disagreed with the Bible. See, the Bible, for example, teaches around Earth. In, in uh, uh, Job chapter uh, 26, verse 10, it indicates that the terminator on the Earth is a circle, which indicates that the Earth is spherical. And that was written at a time when people did not believe that. That was written at a time when most people thought the earth was flat. And so the, the, science, the experts of the day were wrong. The Bible was right. Imagine and then that. I give other examples. The earth floats in space. Job 26, um, 7, earth floats in space. That was written at a time when people did not believe that. Uh, and, then, and, and so on and so Isaiah uh, 40, 22, which indicates that God stretches out the heavens. The universe is expanding. That wasn't believed by most experts until the 1920s. And that was when they uh, finally had the technology to be able to detect redshifts of galaxies and find out the universe is expanding. So every time in the past, people have doubted the Bible because it, the expert, the majority of experts of the day disagreed with the Bible. The majority of the experts of the day were wrong and they have egg on their face today. So uh, here's your chance to get on the ground floor because there are some places where the experts today disagree with the Bible. And you can say, well, you know what? I may not know exactly what the answer to that is, but I know you're going to have egg on your face because who can argue, who can contend with the almighty? That's what it comes down to. The Bible really is the word of God. It's clear. It's meant to be understood and you can, you can trust it. Mm, that's, that's so helpful. And I, I appreciate how you especially, you know, advise, ad, advise us as Christians that we don't have to shy away from pursuing the truth. The The truth is on the side of the believer. And so, Pursuing yeah. that through evidence, I mean, that, that's so encouraging that, that the harder you look, the more you pour into it, the more you recognize God's genius. And that's, that's such a beautiful thing. Well, I really appreciate you joining us. I just want to encourage everyone to check out your website. Ian. There's a lot of your lectures that are on YouTube as well. Um, so people can, can check that out. Um, uh, in fact, that's how I first uh, came, came uh, on your discussion of the distant starlight was uh, viewing some of that. Uh, online. So, so look up Jason Lyle, that's L I S L E and a lot of, a lot of books that he's written and uh, lectures that he's done really helpful for 
the Christian worldview, helping us think through that. So Dr. Lau, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, a special thanks to Dr. Jason Lyle for joining us for today's episode. If you want more information about him, you can go to biblicalscienceinstitute.com. That's biblicalscienceinstitute.com to find out more about him, or you can YouTube him. He has many lectures online, or he is well-known on a variety of blogs and podcasts, so I encourage you to become familiar with his work. If you want more information about this podcast or access to some of the blog articles I've written, you can go to petergaiman.com, or if you want more information on the Shepherds Theological Seminary, you can go to shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.